Um, let's have God's word open us up now to James chapter 2. And I know this side seems a little bit dark. If Jeff, can we get the lights on? Thank you. We'll have um, God's word open us up to James 2, verses 14 to 26. Let's all rise as we read God's word together. This is the reading of God's holy word. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them on, sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is the reading of God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Uh, for the past few weeks, we've been exploring different aspects of faith. Faith as a gift, faith as confession, faith as trust, and last week, faith and doubt. Well, today, we are turning atten our attention to the book of James, and we'll be looking at the topic of faith and works. Now, I have to first warn you that James, this book, has been at the center of a lot of controversy and confusion in the church. And the reason why James has become so controversial is mainly because James seems to be contradicting Paul. For instance, if we look up here, this is what Paul says in Romans 3.28. He says, this is Paul, one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So how is one justified? By faith. Well, James in 2.24 says this, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So Paul says we're justified by faith alone, but James says we are justified by works and not by faith alone. So the question is, who's right? Well, I mean, some of us are thinking, well, it has to be Paul, right? He wrote the majority of the New Testament. Oh, but wait. James is actually the brother of Jesus, so proximity to power, I mean, who knows? You know, James uh, has caused so much confusion that even Martin Luther, the pioneer of the Reformation, 
he said this about James. Next slide. He said, James is really an epistle of straw compared to these other letters. In other words, compared to Paul's letters or Hebrews, James is an epistle of straw, for it has nothing of the nature of the gospel about it. In fact, at one point, Martin Luther thought that James shouldn't even be in the Bible. He wanted it to be removed because James doesn't make mention of the cross, and it makes very little mention about Jesus. Now, before you get too confused, I want to say right off the bat that Martin Luther was wrong. Now, we don't say that too often in the church, but Martin Luther, the pioneer of the Reformation, was wrong when it came to James. Okay. Just two things I want to say briefly. First, James and Paul are not in disagreement. Okay. If you were to ever ask Paul, hey, do you agree with what James is saying? Paul would say yes and vice versa. So the two are not in disagreement. Second, while James doesn't explicitly speak of the cross, while he doesn't make explicit mention of Jesus often, the entire letter is based off of Jesus' teaching and his work. Now, this is just a side note before we get into the, to the meat of the message. Martin Luther, I think, is a really good example um, of someone who was trying to fit the Bible into his or her own system of thought. You see, Martin Luther had a way of reading the Bible. He read everything through the lens of the cross. And whenever Luther read something that didn't fit his framework, his worldview, what he did was he tried to dismiss it. And this is a good example of what we shouldn't do. And this is just, you know, a comment for us as we consider, as we read and study the Word together. We have to be careful of trying to get the Bible to fit into our framework, to fit into our worldview, to fit into our ideology and our positions on certain matters. You see, the position that we ought to have is, this is the Word of God. This is God's spoken revelation. And what we ought to do is we ought to receive it and allow it to conform us, not trying to conform this so that it would fit our preferences, our positions, our political views, and our ideologies. See, Luther, I think, even though he was a great man, fell to this. And so I just want to say before we get in, James may be uncomfortable at times. He may say some really eyebrow-raising things, but you and I need to hear it, and we need to hear it by not forcing it into our own boxes, into our own thoughts, but we need to hear it as the Word of God. We need to let James speak. We need to let the Spirit speak through this letter. So let's get into today's passage. This is what James says, verse 14. James says this, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, I want you to notice something about what James is saying here. James isn't talking about someone who has faith yet doesn't have works. That's not what James is talking about. He is talking about someone who claims to have faith. Verse 14 says this, what good is it if someone says he has faith. Or verse 18, 
But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Again, James here is in acknowledging that there's such a thing as faith without works. He's not saying that the two can be, you know, that there is a, a a reality where you can have faith and no works. No, instead, he's actually quoting what people are saying. People are saying, I have faith, you have works. People are claiming to have faith. People are saying, I can have faith that doesn't lead to real action or outward change. And what James is doing is he's pointing out the absurdity of this. You know, I remember some time ago, uh, a few years back, I was um, doing ministry with uh, a college group, and we were in the inner city uh, doing inner city mission work. And after a long day of ministry, uh, we all felt depleted, uh, we all felt tired, and we needed rejuvenation. We needed replenishment. And so what we decided to do was we decided to order Chinese takeout. <laughs> um, the best thing when you're depleted, uh, when you need energy. It's cheap, reliable, and it's good. Wherever you go, it's the same menu the entire world. So I was there, you know, we, we, were, we were very uh, famished and, and tired and said, okay, let's get Chinese takeout, and so we did. I was taking everyone's order, and this one college student, when I said, hey, what do you want? He said, he said I want... Order me beef and broccoli without broccoli. Wait, say that again? Give me beef and broccoli without broccoli. And I said, wait, you mean you want beef, right? And he says, no, I want beef and broccoli without broccoli. And I said, no, no, you see, you can't do that. You can't say you want beef and broccoli with no broccoli because Broccoli is essential to the meal. You can't do that. And he kept arguing, no, 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 they'll, they'll know what you want. They'll know what I want. And I said, no, you need to order beef. That's it. Beef, if you want to be more specific, you can say beef with oyster sauce or whatever. But you can't say, I want beef and broccoli without broccoli. Because that's no longer the menu. You know, in a similar way, James is actually pointing out the absurdity of what people are saying. People are saying, I have faith, you have works. James is saying, that does not make sense. It's like saying, I have a body, but no spirit. He mentions the demons. It's like the demons saying, oh, I believe in God. The demons who believe in God, yet that belief doesn't amount to anything. You see, what James is doing is he's pointing out what people are claiming to have. And so this controversial verse, verse 24, next slide, if a person, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. By faith here, James is referring to the faith that people are claiming to have when he says a person is not justified by faith alone. The faith that people are purporting to have, he's saying, that does not justify you. You know, if you take a step back and read this entire letter carefully, James's main interest isn't 
this faith versus works dichotomy. He isn't saying, hey, let's talk about faith versus works. No, instead, what James is really talking about is genuine faith versus counterfeit faith. He's really drawing a line between real faith and fraudulent faith. And if we view James in this light, this is something that is not unique to James, but we find it all throughout the Bible. This is something that Jesus himself always talked about over and over again. He talked about those who really knew him versus those who claimed to know him. When he talks about the prodigal son, remember, there's this prodigal son who actually comes inside. But what else do we have? We have the elder son who thought he was inside, but all throughout the story, he's outside the father's house. Jesus talks about the sheep and the goat, the separation that's going to occur, the wheat and the chaff, the weeds and the wheat that are together and are separated. Paul himself in Romans 2 talks about how it's the doing of the word and not just the hearing of it that will lead to blessings. You know, just again, another side comment. I think today, modern Christians, we are so obsessed with conviction. You know, conviction that doesn't lead to any sort of action mounts to nothing. So what we have here in James is a teaching that's found all throughout Scripture, that there is such a thing as genuine faith and counterfeit faith. And the real interesting thing is this. Whichever faith one possesses, he or she will be convinced, he or she will think that they have genuine faith. In other words, people with counterfeit faith do not realize that they have counterfeit faith. See, people with counterfeit faith, they're not pretending, they're not faking Rather, they are deceived. They have deceived themselves into thinking they have genuine faith. In uh, Toy Story's work, uh, The Death of Ivan Ilyich, he illustrates this masterfully. The, the main character, the protagonist, Ilian, uh, Ivan Ilyich, he starts off as this humble judge humble judge in the small town, and throughout the story, he rises to prominence. He rises to prominence, and he begins to enjoy the fruits of his success. But Toy Story shows that as he's rising to prominence, as he's growing in respect and life, he thinks what's actually going on is his life is decaying. He's actually going downward. It's this great scene where he's, uh, after being promoted to a really high position, he moves into this new town, and he's in this new home, and he starts decorating it. He starts decorating it beautifully. He says, look, look, at, look at my success. Look what it's given to me. And what, he ha- what happens is he falls off the ladder as he's decorating his house. And that begins the downward spiral of his health. That, starts when he, that, that begins when he starts to realize that his life is actually fading. And towards the end of his life, the main character says this. As he understands how he has been deceived, as he understands now, as his eyes are open, as to how he deceived himself, he says this. I imagined I was going up, but I was going downhill all along. That's what it really was. I was going up in public opinion, but to the same extent, life was ebbing away 
from me. And now it is all done and there is only death. You see, the Bible makes clear that there is such a thing as self-deception. Self-deception when it comes to spiritual matters. And those who are deceived don't know that they are deceived. That's why whenever Jesus brings this up, people are always surprised. They're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? Whenever Jesus talks about his return and how there's going to be a separation, people are saying, what do you mean? They're always shocked when Jesus says, there's going to be people where I say, I never knew you. People are going to say, what are you talking about? So the next question naturally is this. What is the difference between genuine faith and counterfeit faith? How do you know? How do you know that you have genuine faith? And I love the answer that the Bible gives. It doesn't say, oh, you know what? No one really knows. It doesn't say that. And you know, the Bible doesn't say, oh, to really know if you have genuine faith, you have to examine your heart. No, the Bible doesn't say that either. Because the heart is too immaterial, and our hearts often deceive us. Sometimes we cannot believe or trust our heart. But the Bible says this. How do you know the difference between genuine faith and counterfeit faith? The Bible says it's by your fruit. Or using James's language, by your works. The fruits that are produced in your life are a good indication of the faith that we have inside. Jesus often says, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Or James, in today's passage, verse 18, I will show you my faith by my works. Now, I have to expound on this a little bit more. I have to be clear. I have to be clear because I think there people can be confused here. The Bible says it's always genuine faith that leads or produces good fruit. Okay, just as in the way an apple seed will bring forth real apples. Okay, it starts with faith, genuine faith, leading to good fruit. But the reason why I have to make this clear is I know we live in a very goal-driven world. We live in a results-oriented society. And there might be a tendency among Christians and among people in this world to try to go backwards on this, to try to work backwards, right? Because we're so focused on the results or the goal, we think, you know what? I'm going to produce fruit so that I can attain faith. I'm going to do good works so that I can produce faith. And that is something that you cannot do. Just in the way that you can't just staple an apple to an apple tree, or staple an apple to a pear tree, and expect that the stapled apple will somehow go deep into the roots and transform that original seed. See, you can't, you can't by your works produce faith. Much in you know a way that a young college student he can go around with a Harvard sweatshirt, walk around Harvard campus, but that doesn't make you a Harvard student. So, Scripture makes clear, it begins with faith. And true faith naturally, organically produces good fruit. This is the difference that James is drawing on. This is the difference that Jesus and Paul speaks of over and over again. Genuine faith will naturally produce 
good fruit. Now, I know um, at this point, some of you might be thinking, okay, so what is good fruit? What is good works? It can seem a bit arbitrary. You may be thinking, well, you know, I serve at the church. Is that good works? You might be wondering, you know, if I help a lady cross the street, is that good works? If I you know, actually put the shopping cart back into the shopping cart rack in the parking lot, am I doing a good work? If I pick up trash, is that a good work? Well, James, in his book, doesn't leave that up to interpretation. He doesn't leave it up to preference, and he doesn't say, you know what, good works is whatever you're really gifted at, just do that. No, he talks about specific things. He has a, he has a few specific things in mind as he talks about this faith that leads to good, genuine fruit. And I'll, and I'll make mention of four here, and I'll just briefly mention it. If you're really interested, if your interest is sparked, Please, go back this week and read this letter. But he says this, genuine faith leading to good fruit, these four things. First, how you treat others. James constantly speaks of how we treat others, especially those who are less fortunate than us. How do you treat the poor? How do you treat those who are in unfortunate situations? James is, he talks always, do you show favoritism? Do you show favoritism? Do you treat people differently? Do you judge people according to the standards of the world? How do you interact with the poor? When you see the needy, what do you feel? And he, in fact, draws out this scenario, which I'll interpret in today's, or for our time. But he says this, what if a poor person walked into our church? What if a homeless man walked into our church? Would we seat him in the back? Would we have him wait at the back of the line for lunch? Give him the leftovers? If there's a stench from being on the outs, uh, from, from living outside, will people turn away from him? Move away from him? Will we put this individual in the corner and treat him differently? Compare that to a Christian celebrity. Someone who is rich and famous, someone who is well-known, if he walked into our church, how would we respond? Will we sit him in the front? Will we give her time? Acknowledge her? How do we treat people? Do we show favoritism? Genuine faith, James says, leads us do not judge people according to the standards of this world. Second, the second thing that James talks about when it comes to good fruit, he says this, how do we use our tongue? So not just how do we treat people, but how do we use our tongue? And how we treat people, I think, is related to how we speak of others. This is what James says in chapter 3, verses 9 to 10. And next slide. Um, With our tongue... We bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. James constantly draws on this theme of how Christians, how believers, those with genuine faith, use their tongue, how they speak of others. The third thing that James draws on is how we handle our finances. I know many of us have believed the lie that what we do with our money 
has nothing to do with our core beliefs. Many of us have believed a lie that what I do with my money, that's my personal thing. That has nothing to do with what I really believe on the inside. But James says otherwise. He says, your faith changes the way how you view money. It loosens the grip that money has on you. But counterfeit faith, counterfeit faith, that, when it comes to counterfeit faith, money actually brings confidence, hubris, a feeling of self sufficiency. This is what he says in in, uh, chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. See, James draws on the fact that counterfeit faith, when it comes to counterfeit faith, money brings security. It brings confidence. There's a boasting to it. You know, if ever you want to see where your heart is, just look at your spending. Open up your bank account, open up your credit cards. That is where your heart is. The fourth thing that James draws on is our attitude in prayer. It's a central theme to James. How do we handle trials and difficulties? Is it through prayer? Do we pray when we're sick? When we are doubting? Do we pray? Do we trust in the one whom you are praying to? When you go before the Lord in prayer, are you wavering, going back and forth? Our attitude in prayer is a fruit of our faith. So James, just, you know, in this very short, succinct letter, he says, faith is made manifest through works. And four specific areas, how we treat people, what we do with our words, how we spend our money, and what do we do? How do we respond in trials? Now, uh, I can end here and say, all right, go ahead, church, go focus on these things. Focus on these four things. But the truth is, that would be a terrible way to end. Because I don't know about you, but I think I can speak for all of us. We failed miserably in these areas. For instance, the controlling of our tongue. What are the things you've said about others behind closed doors in private conversations? How have you slandered others made in the image of God? What about your finances? And I know you're probably thinking, oh, don't go there. Yes, I'll go there. I mean, honestly, does future investments, does future business bring about a sense of security and confidence to you? What about prayer? How do we handle trials and difficulties? Is it through prayer? You see, as we think about James in this concluding time, you know, one of the reasons why this book is isn't popular, while it isn't studied, while James is never really the, the subject of the, you know, large conferences, it's because James is crushing. James is crushing. But I want to leave you all this morning with hope. Not with a sense of despair and failure, but with hope. And I want to leave you with the right motivation 
Because if we read James carefully, that's what he's doing. You see, James isn't giving us an ultimatum. He isn't saying, you know what, you need to do this, you need to shape it up, or else. That's not what he's doing. What he's doing is that he's pointing out the sins and the flaws within the church. This is what the church was struggling with. Showing favoritism. Treating the poor differently. People slandering. Sharing bitterness, causing division. Breaking down others with their words. He saw and he looked upon the church where there were many who were rich. And he saw that they were haughty. They were arrogant. They were trusting in that. He saw, he looked upon a church that was struggling with trials and a church that wasn't persevering in prayer. And so what James is doing is he isn't giving an ultimatum, saying shape up or else you're done. He's pointing out the sins and the struggles of the church. And you know, for those of you who hear these words, who hear these things and say, oh, you know what? I'm okay. I don't treat the poor differently. My finances are great. Oh, you can check my text messages and my burner phone. There's nothing in it that you would want to, that you, you know, that's not open to the public. If you're, if you're there sitting, sitting there thinking, you know what, this is not me, then yes, like Shakespeare's King Lear, you are self-deceived, living in your own constructed reality. However, if you feel as though there are sins, if you hear these words, if you read this letter and you are cut to the heart, if you feel that these are areas that I have struggled to produce fruit in, I want us to now finally turn our attention to Jesus, and particularly chapter 2, verse 1. James makes mention of Jesus twice, and I think those two times are actually sufficient. It's enough. This is what he says in 2.1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, comma, the Lord of glory. The Lord of glory. See, as James begins, you know, just his, his commandments, his exhortations, as he's trying to get the church to live consistently with their faith, to produce good and genuine fruit. James begins by saying, hold on to the faith that you have in our Lord Jesus Christ, comma, the Lord of glory. He doesn't say, hey, stop these things. Don't show partiality. Stop slandering people. Stop it. No, he says, yeah, don't show favoritism. And it's founded on as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I, I find that what, what James is doing here in chapter 2, verse 1, you know, all throughout the letter, he's talking about our sins, uh, our very petty sins, the nitpicking we do with others. Right? Why is it that we slander people? Why is it that we talk so ill of others? We're nitpicking. This bothers me. That bothers me. I don't like the person when he does this. 
it's actually pretty petty. When you talk about the confidence that we have in our future businesses, he says, your life is a mist. Why is that a concern to you? Why is your confidence in that? Or when you show partiality, when you treat the poor differently. He's saying, do you understand what you guys are doing? You're all human beings made in the image of God, and just because you have a little bit more money, a little bit more stature, you're treating someone differently. Do you know how petty all of this is? And as he draws on the pettiness of our sins and our selfishness, he says, hold on to the faith that we have, the faith that we have in Jesus, the Lord of glory. I love this phrase, the Lord of glory, because it minimizes, it it puts it into perspective, the sins that we are committing, the ways in which we are producing bad fruit, the ways in which we are going about living petty, petty lives. He's saying, look at the Lord of glory, the Lord of glory who came down and did not show favoritism. The one who actually was separated from us entirely. He came down and he treated us all the same. He saw us all as his sons and daughters. And he called those. He equipped those. He died for those. He resurrected for those whom he has chosen. Jesus wasn't picking nits with us. He wasn't saying, oh, I don't like your personality. Oh, you're just too arrogant. Oh, you're just too timid. Um, you know what? You're, you're, you're worthless. No. The Lord of glory, when he came to save us, did not show partiality. You know, this is, I think, a way for us as we go about our lives now forward so we think about, yeah, how is it that genuine faith produces good fruit? I want you to remember chapter 2, verse 1. Hold on to the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. If you understand Christ as the Lord of glory, everything else comes into perspective. Everything else the confidence we have in future business, the way in which we hate and or slander or find others to be un- unpleasurable, all of these things are put into perspective as we see him, the Lord of glory. Friends, would you focus your attention this morning upon Christ who is worthy of all our praise, of all our worship, And this Lord who calls us into his eternal kingdom. This Lord who is in unapproachable light. Who calls us into fellowship with him. And may that free you to live willingly for him this day. Join me in prayer at this time.